Hi everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the New West Dispatch, brought to you by New West Public Affairs. The following episode was recorded live at Alberta Relaunch. The panel was moderated by Dasha Capellos with guests Ian Bodie and Gerald Butts providing insights from the PMO's office. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks everyone. So welcome back. Uh, Shaw Communications has generously sponsored our next panel. So to introduce them, and I did tell you that there was going to be a few lawyers at this thing. Uh, so I'd like to invite one of them to the stage, Shaw's VP of Government Relations. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a political juggernaut in his own right, my friend Chima Nikemdurin. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Mike, for the uh, kind introduction. It's really exciting to be here today. Shaw is so proud to support this important conference on our province's future based here in the West. There are so many positive signs for Alberta. We're slated to lead economic growth. We're seeing announcements day after day about new companies moving here and new investments. You may have heard that there's a little merger going on, maybe with a commissioner of competition willing, um, between uh, Shaw and Rogers Communication. And we're trying to create a new uh, national telecommunications company that will serve Canadians from coast to coast to coast. And we've made important commitments to Western Canada, including $1 billion uh, to connect underserved communities in rural and uh, rural communities, remote communities, and indigenous communities. We all, we'll also have committed to creating Think Lab, a new national technology center employing over 500 professionals right here in Calgary while maintaining Calgary as our Western headquarters. We are optimistic that through partnership and collaboration that we can connect every corner of this province so that everyone can participate in the digital revolution. Now, you're not here to hear me. You're here to hear our guest panelists. And so joining us to share their insights are two of Canada's most, uh, most advanced political thought leaders, Ian Brody and Gerald Butts. Between 2005 and 2008, Ian Brody was Chief of Staff to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and previously served as the Executive Director of the Conservative Party of Canada. Ian is currently a fellow at the Center of Strategic and Security Studies at the University of Calgary, where he teaches political science. And I remember meeting Ian, uh, he, he probably doesn't meet, remember this, but we used to meet years and years ago when we both had hair. <laughs> <laughs> Ian is a member of the Advisory Board of the Canadian Global, Pub, Global Affairs Institute and author of Friends of the Court and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal recipient. Join in on stage is fellow McGill alumni, Gerald Butts. Gerald is Vice Chairman and Senior Advisor at Eurasia Group. He also managed to navigate Pearson Airport to get here successfully, which was a challenge. <laughs> Jerry has also served notably as the Principal Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from 2015 and 2019, and was instrumental in designing the strategies for the Liberal Party's 2015 and 2019 national election campaigns, as well as Prime Minister Trudeau's successful leadership campaign in 2013. And it's important that we have someone here to keep these gentlemen on track. And we have the host of CBC's Power and Politics, the Venerable Vashi Capellos. Vashi is the Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block for Global, and Ottawa uh, was formerly uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block at Global News before she joined the CBC. She's a highly decorated and award-winning journalist. I've heard she's got really, really good questions. And, um, and these gentlemen should be um, worried. Anyways, I want to thank all our guests 
uh, for joining us today. And without further ado, I'll turn it over to you. Um, I'm really, really happy to be here today. Nobody has to be worried about anything, I promise. Uh, and I'm really glad to be back in Alberta. Thanks so much for, for having all of us. The idea, or my idea for this conversation is to I hope get some interesting insight into the way a Prime Minister's office works, what happens there, but also to sort of uh, move the conversation into the current state of politics, the state of media in this country, people's trust or lack thereof in that, and then also some uh, insights into what both of you gentlemen think about the current political environment. So what might happen when the next election is coming, that kind of thing. So lots of interesting stuff for us political junkies in the room. Uh, let's start off on the subject of the Prime Minister's office. And if I could, Jerry, I'll start with you. If you could describe for everyone sitting here what it's like to work in the PMO in like one sentence, what would you say? <laughs> it's a trick I use on my show yeah. a lot lately, just succinctly. <laughs> it's, it's a daily effort uh, to control chaos and stay <laughs> focused on the big things you got there to do. Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think you can, <clears throat> there's two pressures, right? Uh, there's the pressure to fight today's fire, which could overwhelm you if you decided to pursue that, and then you'd accomplish nothing. Um, uh, or, or to remember why you thought you were there in the first place, and to try and make sure that your prime minister's time in office is meaningful and has some kind of impact on the country. And, you know, you try to make sure there's other people to do the daily firefighting while you keep track of the big picture, but that's a constant fight. Yeah, I think I, there, I'm, I'm sure there are staffers who will roll their eyes when they hear me say this because they heard me say it so many times in the time I was in the PMO, but the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. How and hard is that? It's next to <coughs> impossible on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> but doing it well separates the successful prime ministerships from the unsuccessful ones, in my view. When you first entered politics, Ian, did you think you would be running a prime minister's office? Like, is that a job that was in your head somewhere? <laughs> oh my goodness, no. I, no, I arrived in Ottawa in the spring of 2003, and at that point, we were just trying to keep the Canadian Alliance from blowing itself to pieces. And I thought I'd go and I'd help make sure that the Canadian Alliance didn't blow itself to pieces. But, you know, I mean, uh, Harper, whatever else you want to say, but it was a, was a unifier of, of people. And so the, the Canadian Alliance was in better shape than I probably thought it was when I got to Ottawa in 2003. We did the merger, he did the merger a couple of months later and then we were on after that. But when I first got there, no, I had low expectations of just making sure that we didn't, that we didn't destroy the party in the course of the first summer I was gonna be in Ottawa. How about you, Jerry? Well, I mean, you, you may recall that the 2011 election didn't exactly leave people thinking that the Liberal Party was on the verge of forming a government, to say the least. So we were, <clears throat> during the leadership campaign, we were fighting to keep the party relevant and alive. And uh, I certainly had no um, preconceived expectations. We had lots of hopes, but uh, we certainly didn't foresee until really the week before it happened the certainty of a majority government. We kind of held the, held the prospect of it in the back of our minds and you certainly work toward that and hope for it. But I remember spending most of the campaign in 2015 telling people not to ever say that word. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then when you knew that it was you know, a week out, is, is, did you know you would be running the PMO? Did you know that you would be occupying um, that position? Was that your intent? No, uh, actually I was serious, I was torn. I, really wanted to go back to Toronto with my family, to be honest. Um, but 
it was just the way things worked out during the transition that uh, I had, and this is where Ian and I got to know each other when he was running Mr. Harper's office and I was in senior staff in Mr. McGinty's office. We spent a lot of time together and did some productive things together, I think. So I was one of the people around who'd had some experience and it kind of felt to me. Ian, what do you think people don't know about the PMO? <clears throat> I think once you've been in office for more than a couple of weeks, Every piece of information that you get in the Prime Minister's office is an interested piece of information, right. right? Nobody comes into the Prime Minister's office on an ordinary day and says, here's the whole situation that you need to know, here's the whole picture. And with the greatest respect to the lobbyists in the room and people representing companies and so on and so forth, of course they come to represent their company's interests or their community. You've got people here in municipal politics, uh, they want to hear, you know, here's the view from Airdrie, here's the view from wherever. And so trying to get the actual ground truth of a situation in a bigger picture than that becomes increasingly difficult the longer you're in office. And that's why I think, you know, people say, oh, why did that person stick around so long? Or why is the prime minister loyal to that person? More often than not, the prime minister is loyal to that person because they'll give them the honest to God's truth. Yeah. And the longer you're in office, the harder it is to find somebody who will do that. Because the more you're surrounded by people who, you know, to be blunt, are getting paid to tell you their version of the story. There's nothing wrong with that, but the challenge on the political side is to dig a little bit past that because you can't, you can't depend, you can't get caught. If you allow yourself, you will get caught. The Ottawa bubble means you're stuck there with people who are being paid to tell you their version of the truth. Mm. And getting past the bubble doesn't mean, you know, there's anything wrong particularly with Ottawa, it would be wherever the government was. Getting past the bubble means to try to get past all of the partial truths that people are trying to tell you to get to something in touch with something that's closer to the ground. Yeah. I see you nodding, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, the longer you're in those jobs, Vashi, the more people see you as those jobs and not as the person in it. <laughs> and um, you have to respect that because they're really important jobs, right? That you occupy it for, uh, sometimes it feels like a very long time, Ian, <laughs> but uh, uh, in, for anybody, it's a relatively short period of time and you have to take it seriously and know that when people are petitioning you for whatever reason, what they're really talking to is the office. They're not talking to you as a person. And it's, you can lament that or uh, bemoan it, but that's just the way it is. I, I, told, I told Mr. Trudeau's chief of staff, I've only met her once, I told her a story when I was in the office, uh, Derek Bernie called me one day. I went through the morning staff calls and the staff meetings and so forth. I come back and there's a bunch of messages on my desk and the top one was from Derek Bernie, who'd been in charge of Mr. Harper's transition team and had been chief of staff before. And I said, well, you know, Derek's calling, I better call him back right away. And I called Derek right back right away. I said, Derek, I saw you called, what's up? And he says, I just want you to know you've been chief of staff for 19 months today. I said, oh yeah, I hadn't really noted the anniversary or whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Nine, 19 months, that's great. And he said, I left after 19 months, click. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it's a typically, uh, you know, Derek's messages were always blunt. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't gonna waste any additional words, but it's like, you're past your best before date, and, uh, or you're coming to your best before date. And I think there is, you know, my advice to every chief of staff is to say, circle 24 months from now and really? be sure you're gone by that date. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, I have a funny Derek Bernie story <laughs> and since we're in Alberta, this was in the middle of the NAFTA negotiations and Prime Minister Mulroney had said something, he had misspoke he in public in the middle of the NAFTA negotiations and the next morning I come into my office and there's a note from called Derek Bernie 
So I, call, I called Derek and he said, well, I just want to explain what it was that uh, Mr. Mulroney wanted to say. And I said, wait a second, Derek. Are you, you mean to tell me these jobs are a life sentence? <laughs> <laughs> yes. He said, I'm afraid to tell you they are a life sentence. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, a criticism or a narrative that has emerged. Interestingly, that kind of crosses party lines, right? And that is around a sort of this idea of a centralization of power or the PMO wielding too much power because both your governments have been on the receiving end of that yeah. narrative or that criticism. And I wonder if you think, uh, Jerry, I'll start with you, A, that there's merit to it um, or B, how, uh, what you think of that narrative right now. Um, I think there's merit to it. I thought there was merit to it when it was leveled against uh, Mr. Harper. I think there's merit to it when it was leveled against us when I was there, but I also think it's overblown. I think that um, there's, a, it, there's a lot of confirmation bias built, built up in it. If people tell that story, it's something people, uh, if the media tells that story or departing staffers or ministers tell that story, it's something that people won't already think is true. Um, in my experience, in some of the biggest pieces of legislation we did, it was the ministers who decided the contours of, uh, obviously we had campaign commitments around things like marijuana legalization and assisted dying and carbon pricing and all these things. But it really was in the hands of the ministers and the cabinet committees to define what those, how those uh, commitments got implemented. And I, I would, wouldn't tell tales at a school, but I would definitely say there were a bunch of things that I personally gave the contrary advice that didn't happen, but that's the way it should work. And I'm sure you would be the, you would Ian, what do you that. think? Well, I wrote a whole book about this, which you should buy at the Center of Government. It's available for $28.95 on Amazon. It was a bestseller a few years ago, and I made all my students buy it. Um, there, are some things, there are some things in government that are in limited supply. And ultimately, what's in limited supply, the prime minister has to make the decision about. So you've got only a certain number of hours of time in the House of Commons for legislation. That means no matter how long the ministers worked on it and officials have worked on it, it's a fantastic piece of legislation, everybody buys in. Yeah. In the end, the prime minister has to make the decision about, you know, we're coming down to the end of the session before June, we've got time for three bills, there's 12 bills on the order paper, here's the nine that aren't gonna go. And there's no way the Prime Minister can delegate that. I mean, you can get advice from people, there's people to help, but in the end, the PM has to say, sorry, I know you spent 24 months on these amendments to the Copyright Act or whatever it is. Um, no offense not, to the Copyright Act. No offense to the Copyright Act, but we've got some tax stuff yeah. we gotta do instead. Yeah. And similarly, I don't think this has been a concern over the past two years, but it will be a concern again at some point. There's also only so much money. Yeah. And in the end, you know, the budget stuff is about dividing up a fixed pie at a certain point. And, you know, there's always $20, million, $20 billion more of budget, except for the last two years, $20 billion more of budget ass than there is money to pay for it. Yeah. And in the end, finance minister can help, treasury board can help, but in the end, the prime minister says, sorry, I know that this program you designed is very important, but we're doing this other thing. Yeah. I feel like you're talking about it, though, from sort of like the policy perspective, sure. and that's very understandable. <clears throat> I think some of us uh, see it from a communications perspective, right. for, too, and I wonder if you can both weigh in on that and the idea that, and, and I'm not certain it's 100% true either, but this idea that so much of what is conveyed to the public, every little bit well, look, has to be approved. Uh, 
When I was around, I mean, uh, the big change since I was chief of staff is like there was really no Twitter, right? Like I remember when I first heard of what Facebook. What a wonderful world that I was would in. Be. <laughs> and, yeah, and so now there's 24 hours a day of everything is documented, and you cannot have ministers contradict themselves in public. You cannot have a minister contradict the prime minister about the situation in in Ukraine. Are we going to send this, that, or the other weaponry in Ukraine? You can't have ministers saying different things in public. Um, now, we have to find ways to let people float trial balloons and so on and so forth, but when it comes to matters of life and death or high policy or whatever, ministers all have to be on the same page. And that does mean at a certain point, you're going to centralize to make sure that there's some uniformity there. There's trust on some issues that are merging. You let ministers go say, you know, some trial balloons and so on and so forth. Somebody who has a five o'clock TV show is going to get the minister on and parse out the differences. Not mentioning what any This names. minister said, no, it's not, it's, it's the other network. Um, <laughs> you know, it's going to try and nail the minister for some difference between what this minister said and that minister said. You can tolerate that up to a certain point, but at a certain point when, you know, the President of the United States calls, wants to know from the Prime Minister, what are you going to ship to Ukraine? The Prime Minister makes a decision, everybody's got to be singing from the same hymn book on that, because yeah. we can't send the mixed message when it's that big a deal. Yeah, and I'd just add to that, that uh, it gets back to the first thing I think we both said in different ways, it's time management, right? Do you, you have a precious amount of time to do the things you were sent there to do? Do you want to spend that time explaining uh, how the minister misspoke to the Globe and Mail, right? You just, uh, there's a, uh, I understand why it's frustrating, especially for people in your profession, Bashi, but from my perspective, it's uh, purely, I, A, I think it's overblown, and B, it's an efficiency thing. You just, you don't have a lot of time. Okay, I have one more question about the PMO, and then we'll move on to kind of the state of uh, government and media right now, and, and that is, is there anything when you look back that you wish you did differently? You've had more time to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had more time to think about it. Uh, I wish I got out of Ottawa more often. Uh, there is the pressure, especially when the House of Commons is sitting in question periods at 2.15, to make sure that everything's going to be fine for the day and you've got to be there to make sure nothing goes wrong. Um, and that's fine. But I think about the times that um, I got out of Ottawa, I got back to Calgary, which has been a lot, a lot of my life here, uh, uh, back to Toronto, out to other parts of the country. I should have done more of that, and that was a mistake. Jerry? Uh, I wish, well, there are a lot of things, actually, but uh, some of them obvious, I'm sure, to people in the room. Um, but I wish we had spent more time in the first transition and not rushed through it. We, we came in, and I remember getting a briefing from the then clerk, now clerk, uh, Janice Charette, who's a wonderful, wonderful, talented, uh, brilliant person, about all of the things we had to do over the next six weeks we had to go to. Uh, APEC, and we had to go to the G20 and the Paris uh, Agreement uh, negotiations. We're obviously in Paris, Chagham. The Queen was going to be there, so we couldn't miss that. Can't miss the Queen. Can't miss the Queen. No, that's the only reason people go to the Commonwealth Summit. That's right. And we, were, we did all of this in the first six weeks after the government was sworn in, and we looked at the calendar and said that meant, holy smokes, we've only got two, two and a half weeks to do this transition. Um, so I wish we'd said, you know what, nobody's going to remember what the Prime Minister toasted the Queen in Malta in uh, the fall of 2015 and just took our time. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk about um, the state of government and sort of and, and media and the level of faith of the public is because I think, you know, I don't know you both that well, but I think we all share in common that we probably entered our fields because uh, we believe in what we, d we do, totally. we like what we do, and we, we um, 
you know, certainly I read those numbers from Abacus most recently, but lots of other places have done it with like a bit of heartbreak, right? It's, it's, and, and I reflect a lot on my own role in that and what I can do. And I, and I wondered from your perspective, when you read that, and it, it sort of, to a certain degree, crosses party lines, but polling shows, obviously, especially where the media is concerned or certain institutions, the level of faith from more right-leaning parties and level of trust in those institutions is lower. Um, I wonder what you think when you read that and um, if it surprises you at all or if it's you know in line with what you saw in the past number of years. Jerry, you go first. Uh, well, I certainly, it, it kind of makes me pretty sad to look at it, Fashi, to be honest. I mean, I, I was a coal miners kid from Cape Breton and I got to do the things I got to do in life largely because we had public institutions that people cared about successive generations people cared about and invested in and I could go to school in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia and get a great education just like somebody who was grown up in Toronto. Um, and I really, really worry about the erosion of faith in public institutions and it's, I wouldn't blame any one person, party or, or the media for it, but it's, it's slipping. And you see what's happening in the United States. I thought the last bastion of common agreement in the United States would be that the Supreme Court were above politics and it clearly has become the locus of politics in the United States and that stuff really concerns me. It really worries me because we're, uh, Prime Minister said this when we launched the leadership campaign, Canada's the best country in the world, it didn't happen by accident and it won't continue without effort and I believe that fundamentally to be the case and the responsibility of everybody in rooms like this. And it's why uh, I love coming to these things because I think people of, may, we may have different political viewpoints, but we share a deep founded and justifiable love for the country and we all wanna see it be better. So um, I think it's incumbent upon people like Ian and I who've had uh, unique experiences to try and communicate them in a way that's gonna help people in this room. Ian? I think I have two observations on this. One is more general, or one is more specific to my side of the political spectrum, and one I think is more general. Uh, conservatives back in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, and then maybe in the 1970s and 1980s in Canada a little bit later, uh, had at one point uh, sort of a plan for conservative cultural institutions, for conservative leadership inside mainstream cultural institutions, and that basically fell flat. So I think there's a view in the conservative side of the political spectrum that the cultural heights of Western society are close to conservatives. And I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, I work at the university, I, I won't say any more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the conservative meetings at the university take place in what used to be the telephone booth <laughs> outside the faculty club. Uh, you know, some parts of uh, some parts of the media, some parts of television, some parts of uh, you know uh, Netflix is fighting this right now, right? Yeah. And so there's a view that those are not our institutions, in part because at some point in the past we misfired in trying to make sure we were we were present there, and that is a constant. That's a constant fight. It expresses itself in views about the you know CBC and so on and so forth. I don't say that as a concern, as a partisan comment, I just but that that that's a reflection of that is that we can't trust some of these institutions because they're close to us or we didn't succeed in projecting ourselves through them. So that's that's a longer term issue. I would say the moment of hope was, you know, two years ago, uh, confidence, at least here in Canada, that governments were by and large handling the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic well. 
and then at a certain point that slipped. Uh, I mean, I have my own views about why that was the case, but I think that's worth going back and rethinking. You know, I don't know anybody in the public health community who thinks that <clears throat> vilifying people because of their health choices is a good way of getting people to take vaccines or so forth, and yet political leaders across the spectrum decided to, to make that an issue, and I think that was a, I think that was a missed opportunity. Do you think, I guess I wanted to, you know, be a bit optimistic insofar as, like I said, I often reflect on my own role, what I can do, how I can uh, combat that or counter it or help people increase their faith and trust. Is it, a, from Jerry, from your perspective, like what things could government do? What things could politicians do if you were still giving advice yeah. to uh, try and not just say, oh, well, that's the case, like too bad, you know? Yeah, I think, um we haven't talked about social media and the role it plays and how it's embedded in the engine of social media to create ever more, um, to create communities with ever harder carapaces around them, right? And then they just bite all the time. And that's not, definitely that is not a healthy development uh, for any democratic uh, country. But I think that the, the job of leadership in moments like this is to find the things that everybody aspires to and the positive outlook for the country that everybody can agree about. Um, and I think too often, and I'm not being critical of my, God, I hated that when I would see people who used to do, I'm sure you had this experience, you'd see people who used to do these incredibly difficult jobs go on TV and tell you how bad you were at it, <laughs> how they would be doing it so differently if you just changed these one or two things. So I'm not gonna do that. Um, but I would make a general point about political leadership that it's really easy every day to jump in and fight, uh, thinking that winning that day's battle is the war, but taking a step back from it and trying to, to use an old fashioned political term, triangulate above it, uh, is ultimately, in my view, the, the path to success. And every day it's a function of the job that someone wants to drag you into a fight with them. And nine times out of 10, when you get dragged into that fight, you've already lost because their objective was to get you in it in the first place. Yeah, this was a constant fight I had when I was in government with ministers often who said, they threw a punch, it's the wrong <laughs> punch, we have to punch back. You know, we can't let that charge go unanswered. Like, actually, I'm not sure it's worth responding to that. So picking and choosing what you're gonna to respond to. Yeah. I think also in public life, it is very difficult to say, I screwed up, sorry about that. I agree. And I think across some media institutions, some government institutions, some political parties, some academic institutions and so forth, we're not quite in the habit of saying, yeah, we did screw that up, sorry. Uh, because the sort of the coalition instinct, the team nature of politics, yeah. it's a team sport, right? Uh, the team nature of politics is, the team is always right, yes. and we, we have to be here for each other, which is true. If we don't hang together, we'll hang separately, true. Cliche uh, for a reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but you can also say, yeah, we, we, we botched that. Yeah. And, you know, Twitter's going to condemn you for that. Are you hypocrite? This, that, and the other. Just forget it. Yeah. Turn it off. Just leave Twitter. Twitter is like the water cooler, right? I mean, it's, and especially during the pandemic when none of us had real water coolers to hang around, it was a good place to kind of... A water cooler for the most mentally tortured people <laughs> on the planet, so Jerry. Yes, true. Uh, I don't know the water cooler you're hanging out at. <laughs> That's the problem. Nobody's at the same water cooler on That Twitter. is right. the problem. Right. That um, is the problem. Okay, I, 
I have about uh, 25 minutes left and I want to leave a few minutes, uh, 10 or 15 minutes for audience questions. So everybody think of what you'd like to ask. But before I do that, I want to ask both of you about what's happening right now in right. Canadian politics. And uh, I want to start off with the agreement made between the NDP and the Liberals. Uh, Jerry, let me ask you both from a strategic point of view, what you think of that deal and second part of the question, how long you think it'll last. Mm. Um, referencing what I just said about not telling my former colleagues how to do their job, um, I, I can see why they did it. It's certainty, and or at least it's a enhanced certainty over what they were dealing with every day. And I think part of the problem of the, minority, the first minority period was inevitably this happens, that nine out of 10 stories every day are when is the election gonna be? Right, And if you can take that story, again, it gets to time management. If you take that story out of the pipeline and have people talk about other things, then you've already won. Um, but you have to fill it with the things that you want to talk about. And I think that not just this government, but governments around the world have been surprised by, uh, if they read Mark Carney's book, they wouldn't have been surprised by, the inflationary environment that we're facing. Um, and they're struggling to figure out how to deal with it. And you can see it on, in everybody's body language, whether it was, um, I just spent a lot of time with senior colleagues in Germany and France and Norway and, and uh, uh, the Netherlands. They're all having the same problem. And my view is when you really get into trouble, it's when you go out and say something with a sense of certainty to someone like you on your show, and you're really not certain, and it proves to be incorrect very, in very short order, and then you gradually get into a vicious cycle where you lose credibility every time you open your mouth, right? And you don't wanna be in that spot. So uh, I used to have this saying when I was running the policy shop in Dalton McGinty's office when opposition to the policy advisors that if you're not 100% certain of something, you're wrong. Because if something comes out of the candidate's mouth that proves to be wrong, i.e. the direction of the Niagara River, for instance. Right, right, right. Um, Mark's that, here somewhere. Yeah, uh, Mark, Mark Cameron is here somewhere, yeah. friend of both of ours. Uh, then you're gonna, he's gonna, or she's gonna lose credibility and you can't put them in that position. So I, I would advise all uh, political leaders in this really uncertain environment to not be afraid to listen a lot more than they talk. And you didn't answer the second part of the question. How <laughs> oh, long? How long? <laughs> I'm do I, kidding, oh, how long do I, you I, I don't know, Vashi. I mean, I, I think that uh, it's an agreement that is wholly, the execution of which is wholly dependent on the continued adher adherence to the agreement of the parties. There's nothing, like nobody can. Jag Singh can't go to the speaker and say, well, the liberals didn't live up to this right. part of the agreement, or vice versa. So it's going to last as long as the parties want it to last. Ian? Um, the risk of the agreement is all on the NDP side, it strikes me. Uh, the Liberals, I think, could have governed on for quite some time with the assured support of the NDP because they're not in a position to go back to an election campaign. So the risk here is on the NDP side. And the, I think history shows that in these sorts of agreements across Canada and other similar countries, the risk is always on the junior partner having to defend what somebody else's decision has been. And so, you know, Singh, who I think has done a bad hand of playing his leadership of the NDP since he became leader, this sort of since he became leader, it's been nothing but downhill for the NDP, is now gambling a big gamble uh, that has enormous risks, enormous risks for his party. But 
if you know, his party blows up, it's to the advantage of the governing party right now. So, you know, I think strong position for the Liberals to continue on here. I don't see any particular reason why this would come out early. But I remember also the summer of 2005 when Mr. Harper went around and people asked him about what are you going to do about the sponsorship scandal. He said, it's not up to me. My position's on the table here. Go ask Jack Layton when he's going to break with Mr. Martin. And eventually, eventually Jack yeah. broke. So at some point, if there comes a point like that, in this case, I think it'll be in cost of living. You know, complain about the cost of living. Well, what are you going to do? Go talk to Jagmeet Singh about when he's going to bring the government down and get something moving on cost of living. Kind of jumping off that and asking you to look into your ever-present crystal balls once again. <laughs> do, what do you think? And I mean, I know this is contingent on when it happens, but if you were to kind of make the assessment now, what does your gut tell you? And Jerry, I'll start with you about what the next election will be about. And who do you think the leaders of the Conservatives and the Liberals will be? Oh my God, Cassie. <laughs> Look at the time. No, no, 21 <laughs> minutes left. <laughs> yeah. right uh, I'm going to politely decline to answer that <laughs> second part of that question. Um, I, I, think, I think the next, it feels to me like the next election in one way, shape, or form is going to be a change election. And I don't just mean that in the partisan sense, I mean that in the sense that the whole issue set is probably going to change. And that makes sense because we're going through this incredibly disruptive period. You know, it's, um, uh, what's the old uh, the cliche that the, the same character for uh, crisis is opportunity in right. Mandarin or something like that? I mean, that, that's kind of the period we're living through. How many people in this room have ever felt this kind of disruption, right? I talk to a lot of uh, our clients around the world, um, and I explain to them, I have to go back to my university days. In 1990, I was taking a full year course called Government and Politics of the Soviet Union, which started as a political science course and ended as a history course because the Soviet Union broke up that Christmas. And I think that's the magnitude of the crisis we're facing right now. It's both geopolitical, um, it has an enormous energy dimension, as people in this room know well. Uh, it's got demographics attached to it. You know, the, when I was born 100 years ago, actually 50 years ago, there were three and a half billion people on Earth. My kid, I have two teenagers, their generation, Gen Z, 3.8 billion people were born, and 90% of them are in emerging markets. Like, these are huge changes in the world, so it's going to wash on our shores, however protected we feel ourselves to be here in Canada. Long-winded, sorry. No, that's a good way a, of avoiding your first Yeah, no, I appreciate question. that, yeah. But at least you said you declined to answer it. My guess is you're going to decline to answer it. Well, I have a position uh, overseeing the conservative leadership yeah. race, so I gotta be careful what I say about uh, handicapping that race. I, won't, I can't be drawn into that. Do you wanna I, take a guess about whether Justin Trudeau is the leader of the Liberals? I assume he will. I can't see any reason why he'd leave. Um, I can't see any forcing function that would force him to leave, and I can't see why he himself would want to leave, so I assume he'll run again. Um, you know, on a personal note, let me just say, I think the announcement was made public this week. Uh, my union just settled with my employer on a three-year deal, which is zero, zero, zero for three years. Um, if this governing coalition arrangement or whatever agreement lasts for three years, I'm expecting to be 24% poor. I'm expecting 8% inflation a year for the next three years. I mean, it might be off by a little bit. I don't see anything that's going to disrupt that. And so I don't think cost of living pressure, I think all the cost of living pressures we, that Lisa talked about earlier and Monty talked about and so on and so forth that we're gonna talk about later on in the day 
I think they only get worse. Yeah. And so I'm expecting to be literally one quarter poorer come the next election than I am, than I am today, just based on what's been agreed to. Um, I, think, I don't think I'm the only person in that, in that situation. Plus, I don't think the international situation clarifies itself or stabilizes itself any time in the next three years. So all of those pressures continue to mount uh, over the course of the three years or whatever's left, two and a half years left in this deal. And that, that's, that's the, Jerry politely calls it a change election. I agree, that's the upside. On the other hand, it, it, the, the opposite side of a change election is a very ugly political environment. Yeah. I have one last question before we turn it over to the audience. And that is, um, I mean, you've both been very, you have not been very partisan in this discussion, but especially take your you know, partisan hat aside for a moment. Uh, Jerry, if you were to identify what the liberals' greatest vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis the conservatives is, what would you say? And I'll reverse that for you, Ian. Uh, well, I've said this publicly. I said it internally all the time. The uh, Achilles heel of the Liberal Party is arrogance. And uh, the longer you're in power, the more, um, the easier it is. I, I was interested to hear Ian say that what he'd change is he'd get out of Ottawa more, right? Uh, and I certainly agree with that, although I did, it, I did get out of Ottawa a lot. Um, whether you're actually disconnected in the way you think, being disconnected in the way you sound is uh, the same thing for people. So I think that's the biggest danger, and it's a danger that every government faces that's been in power a long time, but it's in particular a danger for the Liberal Party of Canada. Ian, <coughs> what's the Conservatives' greatest vulnerability to the Liberals? The vulnerability here I don't think is actually is an external one. Uh, I mean, there are external vulnerabilities, of course. Achilles was vulnerable only at his heel. If only Conservatives only had one point of vulnerability, it'd be easier to run a Conservative campaign. Uh, I tell you that. Um, uh, that's my insight for the day. Um, so I'm not going to go into the, uh, all the vulnerabilities. I think the, the vulnerability for planning the next campaign is the 37% victory mindset. Yeah. I think all of the parties suffer from this to a certain extent, uh, but Ford proved that that's not a, a, a self-imposed limit. Um, I think you know it's possible because of the electoral system to win a majority with 37, 38% support, and we've been seeing that regularly since 1993. Um, uh, I think a, a, a reach for a broader coalition than that is the is conservatives resist have resisted that, and I think it's time to put that put that behind us. Okay, great. Thank you for your answers. Uh, let's turn it over to the audience. If you have a question, raise your hand and someone with a microphone will come your way. We've got one question right there already. I thought for a moment we'd settled everything. No, not quite. There will be an election. <laughs> uh, Barry Morshi, I'm the leader of the Alberta party here. And hey, you know, you guys talked about, um, you know, things you do better to make it better. But I, I really want to talk about your campaigns in the past and how they've actually set the stage for some of the uh, lack of credibility and in the party system and the process because they've been so negative in the last few times and so demonizing. I, I would like you to comment on how you end up at those strategies and why we can't have elections about ideas. Well, the elections I was most closely involved in was 2006 and we'd picked, uh, you know, um, a short but I thought forward-leaning platform and we sort of topped it off with five key promises, five key priorities of which I think even though we had a minority we delivered on four of them. 
And that was a deliberate choice at that time. Again, it was sort of, we had to make it a change election, so we had to make the case, not just that it was time for the end of the Martin government, but it was time for a change to us. And then, because of the minority situation, I think we all felt we were under great pressure to deliver on those five pieces. Again, we did the four of them. Um, uh, in, or, in order to you know, solidify ourselves that we might be back into, the, into an election that fall, and we wanted to be able to say we didn't, we didn't waste our time in, in office. That might be the last of those, I mean, uh, 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 Jerry's campaign in, um, in uh, 2015, uh, I think, had a different approach to the, same, to the same challenge. Once you're in office then, you know, it's difficult. It's, you, move, you move more of turnout with a negative campaign to suppress your opponent's turnout than you can to encourage people to turn out for yourself. And because even your own partisans, to a certain extent, respond to the negative campaign on the other guy, you want to be fighting for your side, and that helps to mobilize your side out in a turnout election. You know, once we get into a situation where turnout, if we calculated it on the U.S. model in Canada, is down around 50%, we're not really substantially better than most U.S. presidential elections, that question of constructing the electorate, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm getting into the weeds here, but constructing the electorate, meaning deciding who it is that you want to have turn out and who it is that you don't want to have turn out becomes the overriding consideration as time goes on. And as the campaign electorate shrinks over time, that challenge of constructing the electorate, deciding who it is that you're speaking to and who it is that you want to have turn out becomes a negative campaign issue. It's easier to drive people to the polls in fear of the other guy than in support of yourself. And I don't see a, I, I, I'd like to fix that, but I don't see a way around that. Yeah, uh, thanks for your question, Barry. I, I've been involved in four campaigns, two election campaigns, where we won a, gov a majority government from opposition, and two re-election campaigns, one where we kept a majority government in Ontario, and one where we uh, um, were reduced to a minority in Ottawa. And I think I'd say a couple of things. One is it's a really hard to win a majority government in Canada. It really is. And I think the, uh, the, the period, especially when there's my colleagues from the Crutchin era hate when I say this, but uh, they won three straight majority governments against two conservative parties, which had there been two conservative parties in 2015, we would have won 200 seats. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Um, but I think the natural inclination when you're in government and you're fighting those battles we were talking about day after day, is to stage the next re-election, the next election campaign to have the final showdown on those battles, right? So that gets depicted, and it's of course the media's um, natural inclination to report fights, not peace. Uh, as Rick Brennan of the Toronto Star used to say to me all the time, Jerry, when are you people gonna learn that plain lands is not a story? <laughs> um, and I think that is true, and it's been true of all time and has been accelerated by social media. It gets back to the first point I think Ian and I were both saying, which is it's the responsibility of leaders in those moments to try and rise above those fights and paint a positive picture of where they wanna take the country. At the same time, it's a dereliction of political duty if you don't describe for voters what you think the world will look like under your opponent's program. That's politics, right? It's not, as someone famously said, I can't remember who, it's a don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Uh, and I think that it's just too tempting because it's easier uh, to make a comparative judgment than an absolute one. 
I mean, government, also, governments usually lose out yeah, of judgment. And, and the negative statements during a campaign are more credible anyway, right? Like, I could stand up here and give you 100 things that are great about Stephen Harper. You're going to discount all of them because I work for him and he's a friend of mine and I supported the government. You know, fair enough. I mean, it's not that I'm lying. It's just that you're going to discount it. Whereas the negative, negative comments during a campaign are always seen as more credible because in a certain sense they're more creative. Anybody else have a question? I see another hand in the back there. Hello, uh, Ken McNeil again. Uh, I'm a portfolio manager, so I manage people's money. And as you were saying, the uh, inflation over the next while is ripping into people's wealth. And this is likely a case where the politics over the last 20 years has continually bailed out and bailed out and bailed out and bailed out. And um, now it's very likely to put a stop to this, it's gonna to be tough love. And I'm just wondering whether you think that the um, politicians could actually see that through, or is it another case of bailout and eventually we just lose control of inflation? <coughs> Um, crisis management requires particularly nimble government, and that means uh, you know a, a government where people trust each other and where people are working on a similar set of facts, and that's a difficult sort of thing to accomplish. It also helps if the crisis comes after the government's been in office for a few years, so you can build up that kind of confidence in who you can trust and who you cannot trust. Uh, trying to impose actual costs on actual groups in society in an effort to return the federal budget to balance or to some sense of normalcy is extraordinarily difficult. And, uh, you know, I think I've suggested in the past that Mr. Harper's push to balance the budget before the 2015 election might have been a, a year too uh, aggressive. Uh, the fact that the Harper team at that point said that they were surprised by Mr. Trudeau's promise to run a, a deficit, I don't think that was particularly surprising. Um, and so I, I, you know, I thought that was an unfortunate loss of, of, uh, of imagination on the part of the campaign team. Um, I'm breaking Jerry's comment here about not criticizing your, your own phone. Um, but I have to say, They're you know, the campaign team. They, yeah, no, no. Uh, the fact that the fact that Mr. Harper's one big election loss was at the end of a period of balancing the budget, as you know, after the crisis was over, is a lesson that I think has been absorbed learned, codified, <laughs> acted upon. And so I don't, that's why I'm not sure that the inflationary pressures that we have today are a surprise. Yeah, look, I, I think you've got uh, the job of fighting inflation is rightly and um, uh, properly in the hands of the central bankers around the world right now. And while the fiscal policy of government shouldn't make that job more difficult, uh, the temptation is to do exactly that. So you're gonna see a lot of tension between what should be the fiscal policy and the legitimate, um, you know, the, the professors of University of Calgary uh, with their pitchforks saying, I'm a quarter poorer than I was three years ago. What are you gonna do about <laughs> gonna it for do me, about government? That? Yes, what are you gonna do about that? I think that pressure, just to jump in really quickly, is very real though. Like I, I think that, um, it's this really interesting position now where you hear the federal government and, and the Minister of Finance, the Deputy Prime Minister, sort of having to defend 
not doing more when when they have um, you know being as our, our, our questioner asked, you know, sort of characterized very differently in the past at a time now when people really do feel like they could use a break. Yeah. Um, it, the math of it is not easy to work out. And like you said, in your colleagues around the world, governments all around the world, including this one, are now faced with a problem that to a degree they contributed to, but mostly is external, driven by external factors, but they are very, like the people of their countries are feeling it. Oh yeah. And it's something we talk about on the show all the time, like it's the number one, I mean, we did a special on it last week and I think we had like 2,000 people send in questions about how can this, you know, this, that, this, that. It's like, it's very real in people's lives right now, so I feel like um, it's a well, unique political. And it's especially true, like I grew up in a region, as it's usually described by the public service in Ottawa, um, a remote region of Canada. Meaning not Ottawa. <laughs> or possibly Toronto or Montreal. Um, and you folks know this in this room as well as I do, that most things, like the, the federal government, and I certainly learned this going from uh, uh, senior staff at the Premier's office to the Prime Minister's office, that the, the provincial government's about things that people care about every day, right? It's about your electricity bill, it's about your school, it's about the hospital your mom is in or your dad is in or whomever is in. And the federal government is kind of a theological construct for people. But this thing, the cost of living crisis that people are gonna endure because of inflation is very, very real. So um, most federal politicians are not accustomed to dealing with that kind of tactile yeah. Uh, retail politics, and it's going to be really, really hard. The last time, I shouldn't say the last time, when Mr. Kretchen and Mr. Martin's governments went through this in the mid-1990s, the public opinion landscape, the party landscape was totally different. Yeah. There were people in both major political parties who thought that balancing the budget and keeping taxes low was important. You know, that part of the community was split between the two parties. So there was a constituency inside the Liberal Party I'm not sure it was the majority, but there was a, you know, you could carve out a piece of liberal coalition that thought that balancing the budget and keeping taxes in line was important. You know, that, that was a chunk of the party because there was a chunk of the conservative party. Over the course of the past 20 years, though, since the Kretchen Martin success in balancing the budget, the parties have polarized on that. And every piece of public opinion polling I've seen shows that people who think that balancing the budget and keeping taxes low is important identify as conservatives. Like, we own that whole coalition. So, you know, and it's not as big a chunk of the population as it was 30 years ago. So I think the partisan dynamics of this has changed. Yeah. And so conservative governments tend to think that everybody believes that, everybody believes that balancing the budget is important. That's not the case. That's, that's a conservative view now. It wasn't for Mr. Kretchen and Mr. Martin, but it is now. And so uh, in a sense, uh, when the business community and think tanks went out in the 1990s to propagate the idea that we had to kind of balance the budget, live within our means, fix fiscal problems, restructure the federal government, so on and so forth, uh, there was a constituency in both parties that that, that, that um, resonated with. I don't think that's the case anymore. We have time for one. Oh, the alarm's going off, so they better wake up. Uh, we, have <laughs> we have time for one more question from the floor. I see a hand over there. that end of the room. Hi. 
Hi, thank you for taking my question. Uh, Melanie Risden with the Western Standard. Uh, just wanted to ask a couple of questions here. First of all, um, when we're talking about the erosion of faith in uh, public institutions, and we, we sort of got into what uh, can the government do, I'd like to hear from you both as to what you think the government has done wrong in creating or perpetuating that erosion of uh, faith and trust in our public institutions and in the government. I'll make a deal with you, Ian. Yes. I'll say the, the thing that I thought Harper did wrong the worst, and you can no. do the same thing for Trudeau. Okay. No, I'm going to intervene. <laughs> Reflect on yourself. <laughs> I am uh, not going to do that. Um, I'm just not going to do it. I'll be totally blunt with you. I'm not, I'm not going to be that guy ever. Um, there will be no memoirs. Uh, but I will tell you, and it's... Uh, Maybe, Ian, you could do both if you're feeling so inclined. I think that Mr. Harper uh, did an excellent job when he was in power of making his most radical critics look foolish by continuously investing his time and effort into public institutions. And I thought he perilously put that um, brand in, in jeopardy when he attacked uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I thought that was a huge, huge mistake. And people wrote it off, in particular, the populists in the Conservative Party wrote it off as uh, an inside the Beltway story that nobody cared about. But I thought it was one of those things that he had forgotten what got him to where he was in the first place. Hmm. Well, there's a backstory. We'll have a conversation. Yeah. Have a look at that. Uh, it goes <laughs> back to I wasn't there for that, but I was there for an earlier round with the yeah, Chief yeah. Justice. Um, uh, Look, I hinted at it before, but maybe I'll put the, the dot on it for the standard. Uh, I thought we had a moment where everybody was confident that the, government, that the federal government was managing the pandemic properly, whether they agreed with individual measures or not, and there's all sorts of discussion about that, but that they thought that the government was, was doing what it could. I thought that um, uh, the Prime Minister's comment that some Canadian citizens, a large number of Canadian citizens, had unacceptable views, that they therefore had to be organized out of politics with regulation of the internet and you know, disinformation campaigns and so forth, that was bad. That was really bad. Uh, it may have been a, <clears throat> an adept partisan thing to do, but that, that has, I think, uh, as long as he's around, he's gonna have an eroded trust in government institutions as a result of that comment. I, I will say, and I, I'll only say this because I've said it publicly already in, uh, during the election campaign, I was not a fan of having an election last summer. And I thought precisely because it would lead to moments like that. Yeah. And you can't ask people to make these extraordinary sacrifices in their personal lives for two years. And by extraordinary, I mean never before in any of our lives have we made the sacrifices we made. In particular, the voters who voted for the Liberal Party, like the, you know, the woman who's working at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Brampton while we're all at home on our laptops. Uh, that was the real challenge. And um, I think that that, it was, you know, the government didn't have a great answer when you guys asked them on day one why we were having an election. And I think that led to a lot of the sure. problems Ian just described. Okay, we're actually out of time, exactly on time. Thank you everybody, thank you for your questions and thank you very much to our panelists.